Amen, amen. Well, good morning and welcome. You can go ahead and take your seats. And a happy Labor Day to you all uh, as well. And uh, hopefully you are enjoying uh, the extra long weekend. Uh, and one of the ways that we're going to enjoy uh, this weekend is we're going to uh, open God's Word and we're going to let God's Word speak uh, to God's people. So I want to invite you to get your Bibles out. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 9 uh, as we're continuing through uh, the book of Jeremiah. <clears throat> we'll begin at the end of chapter 9 uh, and make our way through uh, the end of chapter 10. But as you're turning there uh, this morning, I want to start our time uh, by asking may maybe what might be an odd question to start a sermon with. Uh, but I want you to think about for a moment, what are you proud of? And you're like, what, 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 am, what am I proud of? Maybe you're proud of your work. Uh, maybe there's some major accomplishment that you've just uh, had at work, some project that you've just uh, finished. Maybe you're, maybe you're proud of a particular achievement or accomplishment. You, 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 you taught yourself something or you did something you didn't know that you'd be able to do. Maybe you're proud of a person. Maybe you're proud of your spouse. Maybe you're proud of your kids. Maybe you're proud of a, a sibling or a friend or whatever the case may be. Here's maybe another way of thinking about this. What is it that you are most eager to declare? Right, this idea of, here's what I will really want people to know about. Here's what I want them to hear about. Because as we come to the passage here this morning, this text is going to reveal that our boast is to be fixed in the person of God. In fact, here's the main idea of what God's Word is going to lead us to this morning. It's that we boast in our great God who is superior over all. Let me say that again, that we boast in our great God who is superior over all. And so before we go any further, I want to just pause and stop. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get into uh, what hasn't necessarily been the case in Jeremiah, but this is actually going to be an encouraging text this morning. Uh, I'm telling you, uh, enjoy it, because it's back to judgment and, and, and damnation uh, next week, okay? Uh, but this should be actually a fun uh, text that's in front of us. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get into it. Gracious and good Heavenly Father, uh, we are so thankful uh, for you. God, we're thankful for your word. God, we're praying uh, this morning that you would use your word to encourage uh, and to edify and to build up your people. And God, we pray that you would give us eyes uh, that would see ears, that would hear hearts, that would know and understand uh, the fullness of what you uh, are declaring to your people and what that means for us and how we live uh, in light of uh, these truths that you have uh, made available to us. And so, Father, we pray uh, that you would accomplish your good work here this morning. God, as always, we want to pray uh, for another church in the area. And this morning, God, we're praying for Church of the Redeemer and for Pastor Robert Browning. God, we're praying that in that body of believers uh, that you would be accomplishing your good purposes. Uh, God, in the same way that we desire, you'd be accomplishing your good purposes uh, within us. So God, would you help us now uh, to see, uh, to believe, uh, and to know the fullness of what your word is declaring to us. Uh, we thank you, Lord, and we pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen. All right, the title of the message this morning is Boasting in God. Boasting in God, again, this idea that we boast in our great God uh, who is superior over all. Uh, and, and if you remember last week, contextually, and this is really important, uh, that last week we began in chapter 7, and we said that all of uh, chapter 7 through 10, that this was a singular unit, it was a singular sermon uh, that Jeremiah was giving to the people. And we talked last week about how the people had refused 
uh, God uh, and instead had pursued these worthless idols. Uh, and so, so we're going to see, uh, particularly in the first two sections of what we're going to see here at the end of 9 and the beginning of chapter 10, that Jeremiah is attempting to make two very stark contrasts uh, of what's going on, that you can boast in the Lord or an external religion, or that, and that you can worship God or that you can worship uh, idols. Now Israel, they, he's already put it on the table that they've refused God, uh, and so the end of the, the text, uh, in 10, 17 to 25, we'll see uh, the subsequent consequences of their rebellion and defiance uh, towards God. But essentially, Jeremiah's uh, point in, in this part of his sermon is he's saying, here's what you could have had, right? you could have had the Lord, but instead you've chosen uh, these worthless idols. This is what you've chosen because this is what you uh, desired. Uh, so with that, let's get into uh, the passage. Uh, let's begin here at the end of chapter 9. Here's uh, what we see in verses 23 to 26. It says this, uh, that we boast in the Lord. That we boast in the Lord. In fact, I'm going to read verses 23 to 26. I'm going to actually ask you to stand uh, as we honor the reading of God's Word. I uh, haven't had a lot of chances to do this because we're doing bigger chunks, but I'm just going to read uh, these handful of verses, and we can honor or stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. It says this. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Loved ones, this is the word of the Lord, and it will stand for all time. Amen? Amen. Why don't you go ahead and take a seat? Right, this idea of we boast in the Lord, and uh, notice, looking at this, verse 23 and 24, uh, the first thing we see is that our only boast is God. That this is the only boast that we have is the person of God. In fact, the encouragement that comes is even if you think you have something else to boast in, don't waste your time boasting in those things. What you want to boast in is, is, is someone who's far better, uh, specifically in the Lord. Why would Jeremiah tell us this? Well, loved ones, could it be could it be that God is simply not interested in us boasting in our might or in our riches or in our wisdom because he's going to be entirely underwhelmed and completely unimpressed? Like, what is it? Think about this. What are you going to boast in that God's going to go, wow, that's actually impressive? Right? Like, think about this. You're like, oh, I'm going to boast in my strength. Well, you know what, God? I can deadlift 600 pounds. God's like, that's cute. I uphold the universe with the word of my power. And that includes you and those 600 pounds, right? Or, or, or it's like, look at this wealth that I've amassed. God's like, that's cute. I literally own everything. Right? Remember, you remember in Lion King, Simba and Mufasa standing there on Pride Rock looking out, and Mufasa says, all that the light touches belongs to us. Okay, God says that for the entirety of the cosmos. Oh, oh and by the way, even what the light doesn't touch still belongs to him. See, see the, the point that, that, that Jeremiah is making here is that the greater possession is him. 
Right? We could have all the might. We could have all the wisdom. We could have all the riches that the world could possibly offer to us, and they would pale in comparison to the fact that we have God. And so he says, here's what you should boast in. Look at verse 24. He tells us two things specifically. Boast in this, that he understands and knows me. He's like, man, you want to boast in something? Boast in the fact that you know God. I'm not talking about a name drop. Hey, did you know that I happen to know Yahweh? No, no, it's not that. That we know God and that we are known by God. So you ever had someone in your life, a friend, a family member, that, that you're just a little bit surprised that you're connected to them, that you're related to them? Like they're just that much better than you? Where you're like, how, how did this happen? Like I, I, I think there's, there's a few people in my life, I think of, I think of my wife, um, and I'm not just saying that because I'm up here. I ask her all the time, I'm like, why did you do this? I, I, I think this was one of the worst decisions you've ever made. Don't get me wrong, I'm super thankful for it. I just don't know why you did it, right? The, the, these people that you're like, I, I don't know why, but for some reason, they're, they're in my life. And Jeremiah's saying, yeah, you have that with the Lord. Right? God's saying, if you're gonna boast, boast in the fact that you know me, and more importantly, that I know you. Like Jesus says something similar in John 17. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. The fullness of life and, and the eternality of life are both tied up in knowing God. Loved ones, we have, the, we have the privilege of knowing God. Boast in that. Declare that. Be eager uh, to share that. But not only that we know him, but also that we understand God. Now, now it's not that we understand God comprehensively. In fact, Jeremiah qualifies this uh, in the next line when he gives these three characteristics of what it is that we understand about God, that we know, right, that the Lord practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. We understand, right, first of all, that God's steadfast love, that's a reference to God's covenant faithfulness, to God's covenant loyalty. We understand that that's who God is and what he does for us. We understand that God is, is a God of justice, that it's not just his, his nature and his action, that they're both in accordance with his just character. And we know that God is the God of righteousness, that he will always act and do what is right and good. So if we're going to boast in anything, let it be that we boast in that not only we know God, but we understand who he is. Just ask you, what are you boasting in? Maybe the better question is, who are you boasting in? May God help us that we would be gripped by the fact that we know God, and more importantly, that God knows us, that we know the God of steadfast love and justice and righteousness. Our only boast is in God. And so then on the heels of that, look at verse 25 and 26. Jeremiah makes what feels like kind of an odd pivot because he starts talking about circumcision here. And yet here's really what he's getting at. It's that we reject boasting in our external religion. So, so it held in contrast to knowing God, now we're looking at this, this external form of religion you get a couple verses here about circumcision. Now, you have to keep in mind, right, that like circumcision was the, the ritual that, that was intended to mark or identify the covenant people of God, right? It, it was always intended to externally mark those who were internally devoted and committed to the Lord. It was never meant to simply just be an external form. 
And yet here, here's what's so interesting is, is God says in verse 25, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. This concept of being circumcised only in the flesh gets picked up all over the place in the New Testament. I'll read here from Galatians 5, although there's a number of places you could go to uh, to read about this, but here's how this plays out in summary. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5, 6. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Right? His whole point was it, it was not meant to, to simply be physical. It was meant to be spiritual. It was not simply meant to be external. It was meant to be internal. It, it was meant to play out at the heart level. The problem is the people rejected God. And so notice, look at this list of countries that shows up in verse 26. Anyone in there that surprises you? Judah. Like, what are they doing on a list with all these other nations? Keep in mind, Jeremiah's written to Judah. This must have been a little bit of a shot across the bow for them. Right? Egypt, Judah. And they're like, wait, what? Edom, the sons of Ammon. No, wait, did he say our name? Yep. He put you in that list. See, the point that God's making is, listen, you're indistinguishable from these other nations. You, you may have been the people that the promise came to, but there's no distinction between you and all these other nations. You're trusting in the external forms of religion, but you do not have a heart or an affection for the person of God. And the whole point that he's trying to make in this is that God didn't intend for external rituals to replace internal fidelity and obedience to him. God's saying your love for me should compel you to be set apart. Not just that you're circumcised, but that the entirety of your life is, is distinct. The problem is you're indistinguishable from the rest of the world. And for the people, right, they, they wanted the external physical sign, and they wanted that to be enough. See, because they, they, they didn't want to have their hearts, and they didn't want to have their lives be conformed to the decrees of God. They didn't want to have to forsake sin. They didn't want to have to stand apart. It's just like, hey, can we just do the externals and then we can go do our own thing? By the way, I would argue it's totally common today as well. If I, if I can go to church, check, okay, now I'm free to go do whatever I want. No, that's not how it works. You know, if I don't watch certain movies, I don't say certain words. It's all surface stuff. It's all this external stuff, but it lacks the heart that God is after. The question we all have to wrestle with is, does our love for God compel us to be distinct? Is our heart willing to be conformed to the ways of God that forsakes what is common in the world? Here, flip with me for a moment to 2 Corinthians 6. I want you, I want you to turn there because I want you to see this. And I want to hear your Bible pages turn just to know you're still with me. All right, 2 Corinthians 6. Now here's a passage. He's talking about being unequally yoked here that we often equate uh, to marriage, which I think is a really narrow uh, application of what's going on in this. It's certainly fair, but it's not limited to that. Because Paul says here, I'm going to start in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 6. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then he's going to pose five questions to the church in Corinth. Here's what he says. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? 
Like, how are those two partnered together in any legitimate way? What fellowship has light with darkness? Like, how do those two fellowship? Look at this third one. What accord has Christ with Belial? Here's, here's probably a better way to understand that. What harmony does Jesus have with Satan? What song do those two sing together? You're like, that, 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 that's a disgusting thought to even consider. That's his whole point. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So he poses these questions. He's going to go on in a moment. He's going to tell the church in Corinth to, to, to be separate, to be distinct, to look differently. But his whole point is he's like, what, what do we have in common with non-believers? Because our hope, our affections, our desires, our loves should be moving in very different directions. And so the issue in Corinth, and the same thing with what's going on in Jeremiah's day, is if that's true, why do we look exactly the same? And loved ones, here's why. Because our hearts have not ultimately been captivated by Jesus. They're captivated by the world. Right? That, that, that's the issue. Right? We, we want the external religion to be enough, so I am free to go do what I want to do, the things that I desire, the things that I enjoy, the things that I want to pursue, at the expense of actually allowing my heart to belong to the Lord. God help us that we would put to death trusting in external religion and that our hearts would be gripped and captivated by Christ. We boast in the Lord. Not anything we do, not anything on the externals. No, we're boasting in knowing him and understanding who he is. This first contrast now leads into what we see in chapter 10, a second contrast that Jeremiah is going to give. Uh, and this contrast centers around worship. And so uh, just notice this here in a, in, a, in, a, in a broad sense. Here's what we see in verses 1 through 16, that we worship our incomparable God. We worship our incomparable God. And so, so here now the contrast is between worshiping God and worshiping idols. Now idolatry was a major issue uh, for the nation of Israel. You could actually argue that was their greatest stumbling block. Uh, idolatry is what provoked the anger and the wrath uh, of, of the Lord. Uh, and, and in this word that Jeremiah is about to, to give, in, in the context of refusing God to pursue idols, it's going to simultaneously reveal the futility of idols and the supremacy of God. Because here's what Jeremiah is going to do. He's going to say, you chose idols, bad call, uh, at the expense of not choosing the Lord, which would have been a far better call. Because almost immediately it's going to be revealed the utter futility of idols. In fact, that's what we see in verses 1 through 5. We see the futility of idols. And the entirety of these five verses is meant to reveal both the, the, the futility and the impotent reality of idols. Look at your Bibles. Here's what it says. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Check this out. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Don't be afraid of them. They cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. I mean, they're utterly futile. Right, I mean, Je Jeremiah is saying, you, you cut down a tree, you take a piece of wood, you fashion it a little bit, you adorn it with some gold and silver. What do you have? 
You don't have a God. You got a scarecrow, right, that, 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 that literally can't do anything. You have to fasten the thing down so it doesn't fall over. I love the bite and the snark, it, 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 and it's appropriate what Jeremiah is doing in this moment. He's like, that silly thing, it can't walk, it can't speak. In fact, it's dependent upon you from get to point, getting from point A to point B. What kind of God is that? And yet it, it forces us to ask the question, why in the world would anyone choose to worship an idol? Like, like this is so lame. What a totally lame God. Who, who, why would people do this? Now, here's a few reasons that people are tempted to worship idols. First of all, is you can see it. Right, we like things that are tangible. Right, you can see an idol, right? As opposed to worshiping in spirit and truth, Jesus talks about in John 4, you can see it. But I think more than, than the, the, the tangibility of an idol, here's what really drives us to worship idols. One, because I can control it. See, an idol made by me can be controlled by me. The Lord is controlled by nobody. Right, so if I go get this other God, I can control it further. Because I can control it, now I'm, I'm free to live as I please. I, I, I can check the box on, on worship, but I don't have the demands put on me. Right? I'm not called to be holy. I'm not called to forsake sin. I, I, I'm not called to follow the Lord. The idol's not going to do anything. It, it can't do anything. It's an inanimate, lifeless object. And, and really what you have going on in verses 1 through 5, all of this is appealing to this sinful desire for you and I to be autonomous from God so that we can act as a God. We are simply recreating Genesis 3 in our own context. I want to be in control of my own destiny. And so he says, beginning of verse 2, learn not the way of the nations. It's almost identical to what Paul says in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world. Right? That, that, that even though it's common for others, that it should not be common for us. It should not be characteristic of us. And so church, here's, here's what I would have you consider. Are there places in your life where you are pursuing an idol? You are pursuing this functional savior that appeals to your ability to see, your ability to control, or to pursue autonomy that is simultaneously driving you from the Lord. And, and, and you might say, well, no, I, you know, I, don't, I don't have an idol. There's, there's no wooden or stone statue on the mantle in my home. No, no, listen, uh, none of you have that. But, but Calvin rightly said that the human heart is an idol factory. You and I can make an idol out of anything or everything. Right? So today, it's, it's not these physical objects that we put on the mantle in our home. It's going to be money. It's going to be position. It's going to be power. It's going to be beauty. Right? These are things we can see, things we can control, things that give me a sense of autonomy. In fact, even good things can become idols. You can make an idol out of your family. You can make an idol out of your marriage. You can make an idol out of ministry. It doesn't even have to be neutral. But yet there's this futility to this. And so, so more than even asking, do you have idols? We all have idols. We're all constantly wrestling with idolatry of something in our life. Here's the more pressing question that I think all of us have to wrestle with. What are the guardrails and the boundaries that you have in your heart and your life to protect you from idols? Right? How would we know if something's becoming an idol in our life? 
Who's speaking into our life? Who's asking those questions of us? Because I, I don't know about you, man. I, I read verses one through five, and I'm like, what complete moron would give themselves over to this? Okay, now church, let's answer the question. Who would do it? Point to the person who would do it, right? Don't you dare point at me. You better point at yourself. I'm pointing at me. Otherwise, I'll just point at you, right? We, this is what we do. We do this. This is us. This is why we need God's word. This is why we need the Bible to remind us of these truths. Jeremiah's saying, here's this lame, pathetic God that you chose. Now look at what he does starting in verse six. He's like, here's who you had offered to you and you rejected. So starting in verse 6, we have the incomparable supremacy of God, which, by the way, this is, you want to talk about no competition. There is zero competition that exists between who God is and who these idols are. So this is an absolute bloodbath that Jeremiah is about to unfold. But not only that, he, he depicts just this stunning portrait of God, revealing the, the, the uniqueness uh, of our great God. And let me just say this, church, in a book that has been loaded with judgment and rebellion and defiance and wickedness and sin and just this high-level stupidity of the people. It feels like in every verse, this right here, for, for a moment, the clouds break and the sun shines down and we want to bask in this sunlight and in the glory of what's in front of us. And so this, this is a refreshing word about the awesomeness of our God. And so let me just encourage you, we're going we're to work through a variety of these attributes. I think we have nine of them. Uh, as we do this, let me just encourage you to be awed by God, to savor and delight in the person and work of God, who he is and what he does, his goodness, his character, that you just take even these next few moments to marvel at all that God is doing and to be reminded that this incredible God would choose to set his love on you and I and redeem a group of rebels. So here we go. The incomparable supremacy of God. This will be fun. Look at verse six. There's none like you, O Lord. He just starts with this statement that you stand alone. It's really a summary statement. and He'll finish by making a similar statement that there's none like you. But this summary statement of all the ways that God is incomparable, and now he begins to get into it. Look at the back half of verse six. You are great, and your name is great in might. Here's the first thing we see about God, that God is great. God is great. Now, great, it's one of those words that in our modern vernacular in a lot of ways has been stripped of its, of its force and its impact. Uh, it gets used so often that it just becomes kind of generic. Right? We've done the same thing with words like love. We love tacos, we love our spouses, and we love uh, football, and we love dogs. We don't ever love cats, right? We love dogs. Uh, right, and other things, but it's this generic word where you're like, what, what does that mean? And, and great is like that as well, right? Our, our, our spouse is great, football is great, tacos also are great, right? But, but like these, the, the, these things that it just strips it of its force, and yet great, what great means or implies is superiority. It speaks to the preeminence of that particular individual or, or that object. That's why often in sports you hear these conversations about what they refer to as the GOAT, right? The greatest of all time. Who's the greatest quarterback or who's the greatest ball player or basketball player, you know, whatever it is. And you see it with, with music or with, with, with entertainers or, or whatever the case may be. 
And yet what we're told here, now there's only one that's truly great. God is the one who's great. And it says that he's great in name and in might. Right? So God is great in himself, and he's also great in his name. Right? That's his character, and he's great in his might or in his power. Jeremiah's like, there's one true goat, and his name is Yahweh. Right? God is great. Verse 7. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations, for this is your due. From among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there's none like you. God is to be feared. Now, now, Now the question, I love what Jeremiah does here. He poses this question, who wouldn't fear you? And it's simultaneously ascribing glory to God while also indicting Israel. Like who in their right mind wouldn't fear the Lord? Oh, hey, sorry, I didn't see you there, Israel. Oh, wait, you're the ones who don't fear the Lord. And he says, this is, this is what is due of God. And why is it that God is to be feared? Well, there's a variety of reasons that God is to be feared. One of the things that's fascinating, though, it, it, make note of this, that the, the, the fear of the Lord, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge for you and I. And when you go and you look at the wisdom literature, we talk about the wisdom literature, we're talking about Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, those books. Every single one of those books has a purpose statement that's almost identical. So here, I'm going to give you four references. You can go read them later. Job 28, 28, Psalm 111, 10, Proverbs 1, 7, and Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. Job 28, 28, Psalm 111, 10, Proverbs 1, 7, and Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 and 14. Go read all four of those. Like, they're the same thing. It's the whole point. The totality of wisdom is wrapped up in fearing the Lord. Right? God is feared because that's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge for all of humanity. Right? So God is great. God is to be feared. Now in verse 8 and 9, he returns, <clears throat> he returns to idols. When he says they are both stupid and foolish, the instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsman and the hand of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet. And purple, they are all the work of skilled men. And he, he, he returns here because he's setting up a number of contrasts that he's about to make in verse 10. So look at what he says in verse 10. <clears throat> but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. A number of items here we want to draw out with respect to the Lord in verse 10. First of all, that God is true. In contrast to the idols... Who are not true, God is true. The idols are simply shams and frauds. They don't have power, they don't have any rule, they don't have any life. They're just blocks of wood. Like that, uh, he's reminding us of that. Which, by the way, Jeremiah is not the only one to remind us that idols are nothing more than a block of wood. Isaiah does the same thing in Isaiah 44. In fact, Isaiah walks through uh, in stunning clarity just the stupidity of worshiping a block of wood. He's like, you cut down a tree and you take some of that wood and you use it to heat your home. You take some of that wood and you use it to bake bread and you take some of that wood and you carve it into an idol and worship it. Like how silly is that? What, what distinguishes the bread and the fire from the bread that you worship? That, that, that's just silly. Makes no sense. Yet God is the God who is the true God. All others are frauds and shams and cheap imitations. He says that he's the living God in contrast to these inanimate idols who we already know, not only do they not live, but they, they can't speak, they can't walk, they can't 
do anything else. Right? God is not only the living God, but he's the one who authors life and the one who gives life. In fact, God has the ability to raise from the dead. It's not simply that he's alive, not simply that he can give life, but he can produce life even where there's death. And he does that both physically and spiritually. Remember in Ezekiel 37, the valley of the dry bones. Right? Bones. We're, we're not talking about a corpse recently dead. We're just talking about the skeletal structure. You're missing some vital organs for life. And what does God do? He breathes life into that. Think about what Jesus says in John 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Right? Jesus not only produces life, but brings the fullness of life. Right? No idol does this. No idol lives or produces life like God. Then we see that he's everlasting or eternal. I want you to think about this for a second. Idols come and go. People come and go. God does not come and go. God just is. And try to wrap your mind around this for a moment. That God has existed from eternity past. There's never been a moment when God wasn't. You ever been in a conversation, maybe with some people that are older than you, and they're talking about some past event, and you're like, I wasn't even born when that happened. Right, we've all been there, except God. God's never had that experience, because God has always existed from eternity past. And loved ones, th th this is important for us for, for really a number of reasons, but, but I want us to consider how the eternality of God is actually a great source of comfort and help within our life. Because when you think about, you, you just step back for a moment, you think about the eternality of God. Here's what happens for all of us. We're, we're all guilty of this. This happens often. Right? We get wrapped up in the moment. We get wrapped up in, in what's happening right now, how, how these specific events and these circumstances, how they impact us and what they mean for life, and, and we become so locked into that, that that we miss in that moment, we even lose the larger scope of history and all that that entails. We miss how things come and go. Right? We, we, we miss... How, how, how people are fickle. We, we miss how tenuous uh, nations and rulers and leaders actually are. How things in one moment can feel so overwhelming and so all-encompassing, and then you just get a little bit further down the road, and you're like, oh, wasn't what I thought it was. We may or may not have lived through something like that in recent past. Right? We all have some perspective on this. But here's the point. What if you took your current circumstances and how they are pressing you in this moment and you held those up to the eternality of God? What if we reminded ourselves of all that God has seen, all that God has known, all that God has walked his people through? And what if the broad scope of history served to magnify God and minimize our concern? See, this is what the eternality of God does. It gives us context and perspective. It serves to reduce our anxiety and our fear because we look back and we see God's providence, we see God's care, and we see God's rule in the past, and it helps us to know even if I can't see it in the present, it's happening because we also know it's gonna happen in the future. That stepping back and seeing the broad stroke or broad scope and what that does for us. That is everlasting. Notice what it says right after that, that he's the king God is the king. We're told back in verse 7, he's the king of the nations. Not only is he the king, God's actually the everlasting king. Let me just say this. Remember that you have a king. Loved ones, you have a king whose rule is unquestioned. 
who is unrivaled in power, who is unthreatened by others, who is uncompromising in his character, and who is unwavering in his purposes. In fact, not only do you have the king, you have the king of kings. God is king. And so Jeremiah summarizes in verse 11, Thus shall you say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Like, man, God's the only one who did this. And then he continues on, letting them know about the greatness of God. Verse 12, it's he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. Like, God is the creator. God made the world. God established the world. And, and don't forget how God did it. God spoke it all into existence. The very speech of God created everything that you and I see. And not only does his speech speak into existence creation, his speech is what upholds his creation. That's what he says in Hebrews 1. Right? God's activity as creator was accomplished through his speech. Here's my question for you. What have you built with your words? Are they, hey, why don't you come over? Let me check out this patio I built. I just said it. Boom, there it was. Anyone got something like that? God's like, I've got everything like that. You and I don't speak anything into existence with you. We just get in trouble. Right? That's what we do with our words. But God is creator speaking all things into existence. Verse 13, when he utters his voice, there's a tumult of waters in the heavens. Not only is God creator, but God is commander. Right? Creation obeys every single thing that God says. His voice commands adherence which should probably have all of us considering how we view our Bibles. Are we obeying what God has spoken? And then in verse 14 through 16, this final line that it really is meant to be a summary. Well, let me start in verse 14. He returns to the idols. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. There's an encouraging word. Go, go in peace. You're loved. You're all stupid and without knowledge, right? That's God's word speaking God's truth. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For his images are false and there's no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob. For he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. See, God is distinct. There's no one like him. He's incomparable. The, the, the idols are lifeless and worthless and, uh, and, and, and helpless, but God is, he's different. He's distinct. And, and notice what it says specifically. It says, right, that, that is he who is the portion of Jacob. Right, later it talks about us being his inheritance. And this is incredible, loved ones. God is our portion. Right? He's ours. And so in all of, the, all of this, let us see who God is. His greatness and his supremacy and his majesty and his just sheer awesomeness. And as you identify that, just come to grips with how egregious the people's failure to listen to this great God is. Jeremiah's like, you had the chance to know him. You chose this pathetic little scarecrow hanging out in a cucumber field. And so, what it leads to is what we see here in these final verses. It leads to the people's ruin because defiance of God and rejection of God will always lead to ruin. Did you hear that? You defy God. Ruin is always coming. And so that's what we see here in 17 to 25. We understand the ruin of sin. The people now face ruin because of their defiance and rejection of God's word. In fact, a number of scholars and commentators believe that this portion, 
was actually written or spoken shortly before the actual exile. So notice what it says, look at verse 17 and 18. Part of the ruin of sin is, first of all, understanding God's removal. He says, gather up your bundle from the ground, O you who dwell under siege. For thus says the Lord, behold, I'm slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time. He's like, I'm doing it right now. And I'll bring distress on them that they may feel it. He's like, pack your bags. It's time to go. You're under siege. I'm slinging you out of the land. It's going to happen. And in this moment, those those ear-tickling words of peace, peace are starting to ring frustratingly hollow, are they not? It's quite empty. In short, here's what God's telling the people. Don't miss this. He's saying the bill for your sin has come due, and it's time to pay. The bill for your sin has come due, and now it's time to pay. And loved ones, just make note of this. Just make note of this in your life. Just because you don't suffer the consequences of your sin immediately does not mean that you have escaped the consequences or have somehow skated past the cost of sin. Listen very carefully to me. No one, no one, no one gets away with anything in God's economy. Ever. One of the worst lies that you and I can believe is, I got away with it. God didn't see it. God, God, he didn't notice. Yes, he did. And, and the only reason that, there's, that there's, there's any delay whatsoever is because of God's patience in offering you the chance to repent. It will delay the consequence, but it will never eliminate it. The bill has arrived. It's time to settle up. Loved ones, what you and I got to understand is this is true in our life as well. If you choose sin, if you choose rebellion, if you choose defiance, it's going to cost you. And you might be tempted to believe wrongly that for a season or for a time, you could get away with it. But no one ultimately gets away with anything before God. God promised back in Deuteronomy, hey, if you defy me, I'm sending you out of the land. Bills come due. God's removing his people. So starting in verse 19, we see a lament of grief. Here's what it says. Woe is me because of my hurt. My wound is grievous. But I said, truly, this is an affliction and I must bear it. My tent is destroyed and all my cords are broken. My children have gone for me and they are not. There is no one to spread my tent again and to set up my curtains. For the shepherds are stupid and do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered, and all their flock is scattered. Now, this is a lament of grief. Here, here's what's really interesting about this. Jeremiah is pinning this, but it's not from him. And it doesn't seem like this is from the perspective of the Lord either. In fact, what makes the most sense is this lament is actually a lament coming from the perspective of Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem, don't miss this, Jerusalem is lamenting the sin and the grief of the people and how Jerusalem now suffers because of the sin of the people. Right, do you see this? The sin of the people, he talks about the shepherds, right? The leaders, the sin of the people have impacted everybody else. Right, now there's both broad and narrow application for all of us with respect to this in our life. Simply put, your sin will always impact more than you. You hear that? It will always impact others. It never has. Sin never has a single person only impact. Throw a rock into a lake, right? When it hits the water, you have those ripples that start to head out. Sin is like that. It ripples out in every direction, almost always causing more pain, more destruction, more devastation than you and I would think or imagine. 
So let us understand the gravity and the impact of our sin on others. Jerusalem is lamenting the grief that has been caused by the sin of the people and how it now suffers because of the sins of the people. And so Jeremiah concludes this sermon the way really all sermons are concluded with a prayer. He says in verse 23, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not, and on all the peoples that call not on your name. For they have devoured Jacob, they have devoured him and consumed him, and have laid waste his habitation. See, so Jeremiah's prayers, it's a a prayer of confession. He's acknowledging that they deserve this punishment. But notice what he he says here. He, He petitions God to bring a corrective justice, but not a punitive justice. Because if God's full wrath was to fall upon the people, they would be utterly destroyed. But if God's God's justice here is a corrective justice, then there's still this hope, this potential for uh, restoration. And loved ones, for all of us, we would say, praise God. Praise God that his punitive justice does not fall to you and I. You and I are not utterly consumed in God's wrath, but instead that justice has fallen to Jesus. And so God's corrective justice is now offered to us and invites you and I to, to, to be reconciled, to be restored, to be made right. This is why we can return to the Lord, right? because of the shed blood of Jesus in our place. This is why we can be reconciled to the Lord, because of the shed blood of Jesus in our place. Why we can have relationship. Not because of anything in us, but because we're actually clothed and cover, covered with the righteousness of Jesus. And loved ones, this is why we can come to the Lord's table. And we're going to do that now. We're going to come to the Lord's table. The reason that you and I can come to the Lord's table is because God's justice has been satisfied in Christ. 